The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Ill at ease. The virus is spreading and so is the misinformation. We talk to a Harvard epidemiologist who tells us the United States should be investing in testing and inoculating itself against political rhetoric. Ending period poverty. Scotland is poised to become the first country to make pads and tampons freely available to all women. But the parliamentarian behind the bill fears there are still hurdles ahead. Hitting pause. With police patrols and new construction stopped for now, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and government officials resume talks. Our guest helped broker the meeting, and he says that's a huge step in the right direction. Suspended disbelief. Lynn Bayak has been suspended from the Senate for a second time. After failing to complete anti-racism training, she was forced to undergo last time the Red Chamber gave her the boot. New Year resolution. With February 29th fast approaching, our guest says it's high time we turn the page on leap years and ditch the Gregorian calendar altogether. And built to last. Crews are doing everything they can to topple a Dallas office building, but it just won't come down. And now people in the city are doing their level best to have the Leaning Tower designated a World Heritage Site. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that sees why those Texans want to Pisa the action. The United States has its first case of the novel coronavirus in which the origin of the infection is unknown. In other words, doctors can't trace it directly back to contact with someone else who was infected. And according to multiple media reports, the patient wasn't even diagnosed right away because they didn't meet the strict criteria set out by the federal government for doing a test. But meanwhile, Donald Trump is trying to reassure the public about how his government has been handling the situation. We're very, very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not... We're, uh, you know, we're at that very low level, and uh, we want to keep it that way. Eric Ding is an epidemiologist and health economist at the Harvard School of Public Health. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Mr. Ding, when you hear the president speak about the coronavirus and the United States, does that sound reassuring? I am not fully reassured because America's main problem is right now we have no testing almost whatsoever. Uh, we have delayed testing, and we're America's basically in the dark completely about the epidemic. It's like driving in the middle of the night with no headlights. But wait, we're hearing from the president of your country that the risk to the American people remains very low. He is saying there is nothing inevitable about a U.S. outbreak, um, and uh, we've done a great job to keep it down to a minimum. What is any of that based on then? Well, 
it's not based on anything because you can't have an epidemic without any testing. And so right now, uh, the CDC's kits were frozen and recalled because of a lab error. And the U.S., for comparison, has had less than 500 lab tests for the entire country, while South Korea has over 40,000 tests. And that is what you need to truly capture if there really is an epidemic. There's there's four 8,000 people being observed um, under watch in California for suspected uh, coronavirus. So we are it, what his statements is not based on facts or evidence whatsoever. And we just for Canadians, the CDC is the Center for Disease Control in the United States, right? Correct. Why is the United States so, I guess, ill prepared for this? Yeah, that's a really good question. We should have had more. Um, state labs authorized much faster. Now they've finally authorized different labs to skip a few steps and then develop their own tests, which is a good sign because last week Hawaii was begging Japan for their kits because the CDC was not said we were not going to be able to send it to you until March. Yeah, but so you you mentioned they well, there's more than eight thousand people in in California that are being monitored for coronavirus. We now have, which is very significant, you have the first case in the United States of uh, someone uh, uh, getting it who, where the it's of of an unknown origin. What does that tell you? This case right now is someone who's completely unrelated to any Chinese travel or the previous case. So that's very trouble troublesome. You know, for example, in Canada, there was a, the ER doctor was very sharp and tested that woman who came back from Iran and discovered that she was positive. Right now, if a doctor in the United States wanted to test for someone who's not traveling from China, they could not. Is that what happened to this one patient uh, who has it from an unknown origin? I understand he was not initially yeah. tested. Yeah, the person was not tested for many, many days. They had demanded for it. Finally, California provided the test. The test did not come from the CDC, and boom, they discovered that uh, that person did have it. There has no, just uh, recently, I guess, uh, within days, been a, a decision to transfer uh, a large sum of money into uh, um, to uh, an additional sum in order to deal with the outbreak. Is that sufficient? Yeah, the Trump administration has requested transfer $1.25 billion and requests of $1.25 billion more. But $2.5 billion is literally a drop in the bucket. Um, the, the Senate Democratic leader wants $8.5 billion. But you cannot lowball this. Every single minute, every single day, every single week, the epidemic grows, and the epidemic knows no bounds of political boundaries, geographic boundaries whatsoever. What's the level of possibility of a major outbreak of the coronavirus in the United States? I personally think it's pretty high. Because this virus is inevitable, as CDC vaccine director Nancy Messonnier had said yesterday. It is inevitable. And right now, any CDC and NIH directors are gagged from speaking to the public after Trump's announcement. So I think that's very also very unfortunate. What do you mean gagged? Tell us what you know about that. Well, they say because Trump has appointed Vice President Pence as the coordinating person all these previous NIH directors and CDC directors who spoke to the public and gave status reports are now prevented from speaking to the press. All communications must now go through the vice president's office, which, as you know, is a very political office, unlike a public health and scientific body like the NIH or CDC is. That's just like China. 
Yeah, that's very unfortunate. You cannot imagine how upset I am, but that is the world we live in uh, right now. And and right now, all I care about first priority is get the funding for more CDC uh, resources and get the damn tests. <laughs> The, the Another comment on President Trump's part, he said that CNN, the news agency, was trying to make the coronavirus look bad and create a panic, and that uh, he said USA is actually in great shape. Uh, he's also said that in terms of the markets are in great shape, nothing to worry about. If the sources of information, if, if media is discredited as a source of understanding of what this is, what, what does that do for the ability to get the word out that there's that people need to go and deal with this? Yeah, it seeds distrust, especially in the time in which public health is something that matters and touches everyone. And we need the best facts. We need the evidence. We need the best data. We cannot have kind of like China squashing, you know, uh, cherry picking the numbers, cheap changing things. We need transparency and we need to trust in the government. And the public needs to be not be lied that this is the same as the flu, because the flu has a 0.1% mortality, while Trump lied in this press conference that it has a 2% mortality, which is not true at all for the flu. Can you point to anything that you're saying, anyone who's been appointed or any way that the, that, that the government is dealing with this that reassures you in any way? The lab testing, the FDA um, emergency approval for all of these state labs, and that they will hopefully send out the kits to 90 more state labs uh, and public health labs across the country. Um, for example, the flu lab surveillance system, they're going to test every flu negative sample for the coronavirus as a passive surveillance system in, um, in multiple U.S. states and counties. I'm hopeful that that passive testing across the board will pick up the virus and give us good information. Mr. Ding, it's a very alarming report you're giving us, and uh, I, I hope that things do get better in the coming week, and I appreciate speaking, speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Eric Ding is an epidemiologist and health economist at the Harvard School of Public Health. We reached him in Washington, D.C., and you can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Nathan Cullen hopes he's helped rekindle the conversation. The former NDP MP has been acting as British Columbia's liaison with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the coastal gaslink pipeline. When we last spoke with Mr. Cullen, talks had broken down, and the RCMP were hauling people from a blockade stopping the development. And you know what followed. Weeks of protests and blockades that snarled traffic and scuttled government agendas. But as we go to air, Nathan Cullen appears to have everyone talking again. The chiefs, the company, and ministers from the federal and provincial governments are set to meet at a hotel in Smithers, British Columbia. We reached Mr. Cullen before he joined them. Mr. Cullen, we last spoke with you on February the 6th when everything seemed to have fallen apart. Mm -hmm. At that time, you were deeply disappointed. What has it taken to get this meeting today, to get the hereditary chiefs to agree to meet again? To be honest, it took a lot, actually, and and fair enough, because there's um, both historical and and present day a, a great deal of mistrust in these relationships, not just between the hereditary chiefs and and the crown, but um, between them and RCMP and them and the the pipeline company that's proposing a pipeline through the territory. So in that uh, atmosphere of real mistrust, uh, to build towards 
even sitting down, which might not sound like a big deal to a lot of your listeners, it in fact is because it's an expression and I believe a willingness to try to settle this peacefully, which the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have said so. Well, all the parties have said so from the beginning. So we all have the, the everyone has this de- declared intention that we can we can settle this, we can solve this. It's not easy. Yet getting to the, getting even to the to the table has certainly been challenging. And the RCMP, uh, the the gas company, and others have made significant concessions to get us here. The ministers coming to Northern BC are important, and now the chiefs have invited them, and the invitation's been accepted. And hopefully, some progress will be made. It'll be up to those parties now to see a way through. When we spoke, the RCMP had gone into the camps; they were hauling people away. And you mentioned at that time that uh, First Nations, Indigenous peoples' interactions with police and with government are fraught with emotion, and that you were incredibly shaken and sad to see that. How important is it to understand how difficult it is to get people to the table given that history? It's very important. It's I, I would argue it's almost impossible to truly walk in someone's shoes. My, my grandmother didn't have her home burned down, wasn't evicted by Indian agents and with the support of the RCMP in the 1960s. Yet there's chiefs sitting at that table who do live that experience. So when someone says, well, just trust the police, it's like, well, uh, one of their first memories might have been that or the police removing them from homes to take them away from their families for years at a time and exposing them to abuse and all that, the horrors that we know. So I, I suppose one of the best things to do is just believe them when the hereditary chiefs say we have mistrust and believe that that mistrust is founded in experience. Now, in order to get a better world and to have a better relationship, uh, it requires that leap of faith with assurances, which we've tried to build, so that the RCMP, for example, have stood down for the interim. And that's the beginning of hopefully having a different conversation. The the Crown, the federal government, um, the provincial governments, there have been so much harm done to people over the years that one needs to acknowledge it if one is hoping to have a, a different future than a past that we've experienced together. How significant is it now that uh, we have Carolyn Bennett, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, sitting down at this table? Well, I, I think it's very important. I, I think what Ottawa brings to this conversation will be critical. I think it was unfair at the time to simply try to characterize this relationship and this conflict as solely in the hands of British Columbia. And clearly, now that sympathetic protests have gone across the country and, and caused great disruption to Canadians from coast to coast to coast, that it is has become beyond obvious that the federal government will need to play a crucial role in settling this matter. Now, it, it depends on what they bring. How serious are the commitments? Uh, the Wet'suwet'en, again, brought forward Delgamuka Stayway, the seminal court case to the Supreme Court of Canada, which established much in law, but did not have Canada come forward or BC to grant rights and title to the Wet'suwet'en over the territory. We now have that opportunity in front of us to affirm that rights and title and then move forward together. I think the Wet'suwet'en have been very clear about their commitment to peacefulness and also to finding resolution. It's not easy. There's a lot of damage that's been done on all sides and a lot of mistrust, as I mentioned before, yet the only reason you need a peace table is because you've had a conflict. It's because there's mistrust. So I'm glad the parties are there. I have confidence in the people who are gathered. I have hope for their efforts and their intelligence. 
but time will tell. It will be up to those folks at that critical table to see what will happen here, but also obviously have resonance across Canada. But do you think that what's happening now, the meetings that you're having now, could they have happened without the protests that we've seen across the country since our last conversation? I, I don't know. I Part of me suspects not, just because this was an unavoidable conversation now for the federal government. There was no I don't, I don't think there was another path really available now that so much conflict and interruption had happened right across the country, that we've had so many bad experiences, Ipperwash and Oka and all of these other places about the brute application of force when people are protesting. Yet I've been somewhat of a student of the history of social movements, and they don't happen exclusively with protest. They always require political, legal efforts alongside. So if it were just protests, let's put it that way, uh, I don't think so. Uh, if there had been an, an immediate imposition from the state, from uh, the police to shut everything down, I, I don't think any uh, solution that is arrived at through violence is everlasting. And that goes both ways. And so the, the table is required. The, the talking is always better than the alternative. And now we're here. So I'm cautiously hopeful. And in these particular talks, how high are the stakes? My goodness. Um, I, I try have to, to have stayed focused on just enabling the table to come together in my small role. Um, I'm the gopher. I, I run around and just try to get uh, obstacles out of the way and no more than that. Uh, sometimes I do pull back and, and watch what's happening across the country, watch the rhetoric as well on both sides. And I do, when in quieter moments, I do worry that if we're unable to have a breakthrough of some kind, not just in the next couple of days, because that would be quite a bit to ask for, but that this launches that peaceful resolution that we all ask for. If we don't do that, what would the consequences be, for, not just for this country, but for the Wet'suwet'en? The, the land that I live on is here, and the people I deeply care about are here. Boy, it, for everybody, the consequences are significant. I, I, I hesitate to really think too much about failure, because it's kind of not in my particular nature. I, I got to think about how this is going to work, not how and what happens if it fails. Mr. Cullen, we will be watching, but thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Nathan Cullen is the former NDP MP who's acting as British Columbia's, Columbia's liaison with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. We reached him in Smithers, B.C. It's a temporary tourist attraction for the architecturally minded, if you're so inclined to see something so inclined. If you take the trip to Dallas in the near future, you can view a leaning tower that wasn't supposed to lean or be a tower. It's actually what's left of an old office building. Earlier this month, the whole building was supposed to be demolished, but after several attempts to knock it down, it's still up, and its reputation on social media is growing. Natalie Kalmankun is a reporter with the Dallas Morning News. She's become the beat reporter for the so-called Leaning Tower of Dallas. We reached her in nearby Plano, Texas. Natalie, first of all, what does the Leaning Tower of Dallas actually look like? So the tower, um, it, it, it's tilting, and the west side of it is actually uh, cored out, um, and parts of it are crumbling, um, and 
the main part of this is that it's still standing uh, weeks later after the initial implosion, which okay. is incredible. <laughs> okay, so it's not it was, this was not the intention. No one was trying to create another tourist attraction in Dallas. This was not this was not intended. <laughs> Why is this still leaning after all is still up and leaning after weeks after it was supposed to come down? You're right. This definitely was not the intent. Um, there was supposed to be a full implosion. Um, roads were closed down early Sunday morning on February 16th. And um, we watched this implosion happen. And this building, just being as strong as it is, uh, would not go down. It The outside of it crumbled, but this core um, stood standing because there is an elevator shaft. It's made of pure concrete. Um, and it just kind of sank into... Um, um, sank into a basement. So it's kind of like a flower pot, if you think of it. Um, this flower, this tower, which is the flower, um, is just really buried. <laughs> uh, why is, I mean, you, uh, okay, at this point, you figure they, are, well, we're not experts, but a demolition uh, company comes in and it takes a few whacks with a wrecking ball and brings it down, right? Since that implosion didn't work, they brought in uh, crane and wrecking ball, which actually took a few days. Um, and they told the public that the the tower was going to be demolished um, this past Monday between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. Uh, but when I was out there on the site, uh, they put up the wrecking ball and it was almost comical how small it was compared to the building because they started um, this the demolition and I watched for maybe a dozen, like it was about a dozen times that this little wrecking ball hits the side of the building um, and nothing was <laughs> happening. Um, and so all these people kind of watched this happen and it, it just, it was something that you couldn't help but laugh at. Um, it, it was hilarious. And everyone's become an instant expert on how to take down this building, including this man. There's one great photo of a guy standing in front of it with a big sign said, use a bigger ball. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, it's actually become the subject of a lot of memes online. Obviously, it is it is kind of a viral thing. Um, but I, when I spoke to the the demolition company, they said that the reason why the wrecking ball is so small is because um, there's a regulation that says that a wrecking ball cannot weigh more than half of what the crane weighs. Okay, then someone should come up with this sign that use a stronger crane and then get mm -hmm. a bigger ball. So this, I, I guess everyone has an opinion as to why this building isn't coming down. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we, we did speak to the company. Um, I spoke to the company and, and asked them, you know, why that is. And it was the same answer. You know, they're, they're within regulations. This is the only way they can do it. Um, and slowly but surely, this building will come down, uh, whether or not it wants to put up a fight. And it, it is putting up a fight. <laughs> it's the spirit of the building that's resisting, mm -hmm. right? That she's not yes. going to, she's not coming down, the affiliated computer services building of Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. Now, that is true. <laughs> now, somebody should actually find who the builder was because uh, and, and hire them if you want a building that's never going to come down because obviously somebody did a pretty good job at putting this up. 
Oh, yeah. So I, I actually spoke to um, a crane operator who uh, work, has been working on sites and construction sites uh, for the past 40 years. He's in his 60s now. And he was like, you know, I've, I've been um, on working a crane and operating a crane since I was 20. Um, and this is some of the toughest concrete I have ever seen in my life. He was like, I don't know what the building regulations were back then, but the concrete is like glue and <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. And so really it, it is props to whoever built that. Right. Now um, there are, of course, as you mentioned, there are lots of memes. People are taking photos of themselves as they do in the Leaning Tower of Pisa of looking as though they're holding the building up. And uh, But there's also a petition signed by about 1,500 people so far to actually to send to UNESCO to have it declared a World Heritage Site. It really is the spirit of Dallas. I, I, I like to think that um, this tower being up is kind of a quote-unquote Dallas thing. It is the most Dallas thing that I've ever seen. Um, this building is kind of like us Dallasites and like us Texans. We are tough. We are strong. We won't go down without a fight. Um, and yeah, like I said, it, it to me, it is the most Dallas thing to have ever um, been put up. Uh, and it was an accident, of course. Like, <laughs> and, But it's going to live on in Dallas because I understand Legoland in Dallas has, uh, has made their own Leaning Tower of Dallas, and there's now a Lego version of it at the museum, right? Yes, yeah. They so we um, we went to go look at this little Lego uh, model that was put together of the Leaning Tower, um, and yesterday the the Legoland actually did a live stream on their Facebook of um, them. Uh, quote unquote demolishing their version. Um, and it lasted from, it was two hours. Um, and every 15 minutes, they were taking away a few Legos off of the building, um, as if they were demolishing it at the same rate as the real tower, because the real tower is actually going to take, uh, maybe several days or several weeks, uh, to be taken down. Um, and that Lego tower, uh, is doing the same thing. So just very slowly <laughs> but surely coming down. <laughs> Natalie, it's great fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Natalie Kalmankun is a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. She's been covering the now-famous Leaning Tower of Dallas. She's in Plano, Texas. And you can find more on that story on the As It Happens website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Very soon, tampons and pads could be free for all women in Scotland. A bill that would see the Scottish government pay to stock the supplies in public places, like community centres and pharmacies, has passed an initial vote in Parliament. If it goes ahead, it would make Scotland the first jurisdiction in the world to make sanitary products freely available. But there still may be some hurdles to overcome. Monica Lennon is a member of the Scottish Parliament for the Labour Party. She put the bill forward. We reached her in Edinburgh. Ms. Lennon, why do you want the Scottish government to give away free pads and tampons? 
Well, this is not about a giveaway. This is about creating free universal access to period products, which includes tampons, pads and reusable options. It's an issue in Scotland because we know that period poverty exists. Too many women and girls are not able to afford period products when they need them. And many have used alternatives which are not safe or hygienic. So in the last couple of years in Scotland, we've rolled out a number of initiatives so we now have free PD products in every school, college and university. So this bill would make sure that that becomes the law. Because right now it's a policy, so we want that to continue. But beyond that, we want to make sure for people who are not in school, who are not in education, that they access free period products also. I mean, so this, it's already been for, for a couple of years now, you've had this policy for schools, for colleges and universities. How popular has it been so far? It's been very well received. Um, I would say it is very popular. People have used the scheme, benefited from it, and we've had good feedback that in terms of well-being and inclusion and making sure young people participate in sport, the biggest trade union for teachers in Scotland really supports it because up until the last couple of years, teachers were having to share their own tampons and pads with young people. So they told us it was an issue. So it's amazing how quickly people have got used to this in Scotland. It's become really normal. Of course, toilet roll, toilet paper and hand towels are already in public bathrooms. So why not period products? Right. Now, it's going to cost, though, about $31 million US, 24 million pounds. And so you say that this, you're trying to address the issue of poverty, people who can't afford them. Are, uh, so was it not possible to try and make it available to those who can't afford them without making it universal? So in 2016, when I was first elected to the Scottish Parliament, I investigated what period poverty is and, and who that affects. And we heard about women and girls who were forced to go to food banks and homeless shelters to get period products. And they told us that they felt really embarrassed and really ashamed. And the Scottish government took that on board and they ran a pilot scheme in Aberdeen. And that was really well received. But what women told the government was that they didn't want to be means tested or asked lots of personal questions about their income or how many products they need and how heavy their period is, how, how long their period lasts. So we've come up with a system which we believe is free and universal to, to access. But in reality, most women have said they would only use it if they really had to use it. And already in Scotland, we have a similar public health approach to free condoms, which are available to anyone regardless of income. And the uptake of that is very modest. So we see that being the same for this. I, I know there was opposition to this proposal in Scotland. They, people who said it would be open to abuse if you're giving away free period products. And they said that people would take large quantities and, and try and resell them. So was there a concern that there would be some sort of, I don't know, a, a black market for cross-border tampons? Yeah, it was one of the initial concerns raised by the Scottish government. And I suppose ministers have to be fiscally responsible and think about different scenarios and think about risk. But 
in the end, that concern has been sort of pushed aside and actually it was widely ridiculed. There was a concern that people might come over the border from England and take free products from Scotland and sell them at a discounted rate. So kind of a, you know, an underground market for tampons and pads. But actually the UK government, even though Prime Minister Boris Johnson's not regarded as a feminist icon, but in England and they also now have free PD products in schools and colleges and there's a, a task force to look at period poverty. So actually across the UK and Scotland, England and Wales, we're seeing a real change, a real appetite for this. It's really an issue of human dignity. It's been very well received. There has been some resistance at times, but the Scottish Parliament came together members of the Scottish Parliament from all of the parties to back the, the bill at the first important stage. And Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, is on record saying that, you know, everyone should have the right to access these products. Period products are not luxury items, they are essential. And I agree with the First Minister on that point. And I just, you point out that it is the initial vote in Parliament. How confident are you that the bill will become the law? I feel more confident after this week's debate and vote. It's been a journey for people. So I understand that some MSPs have had questions about the, the practicalities, about the, the cost, but they also recognise there's a cost of not doing this. We talked about women who have experienced toxic shock syndrome, people who have had to leave the workplace because they had blood on their their clothing on their uniform because they couldn't get products in the workplace so people realize that there is a benefit to doing this um there's a benefit to our health service as well so i'll go back to the chamber later this year and i hope by the end of 2020 the the period products free provision scotland bill will have passed mm. and will become law and, you know, maybe in 10, 20 years' time, we'll wonder what all the fuss was about. <laughs> well, you will be the first uh, jurisdiction to do this. For, a lot of countries are still trying to get around to cutting the sales tax on sanitary products. So well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Monica Lennon is a member of the Scottish Parliament. She was in Edinburgh. And you can find more on this story on the As It Happens website. Senator Lynn Bayak's apology was too little too late. For the second time, the Senate has suspended her for the remainder of the parliamentary session. She was asked to complete anti-racism training and failed to do so. The move comes just days after the Ontario senator delivered an apology for posting letters to her Senate website that included racist language about Indigenous people. She also said she regretted the harm she caused by describing residential schools in positive terms. Garnet Anjakaneb is a residential school survivor. He's met with Senator Bayak in the past. When CBC Thunder Bay called him up yesterday, he had just learned of the senator's apology. Here's how he reacted. To tell you the honest truth, I would have to say that I would take my turn to reflect on what she has said. It has taken me off guard. I couldn't help but think about some of the harm that she has done in the last few years. For example, uh, as a survivor, 
one of the things that we did in Soligot was we had a meeting with her. She did not listen. And meanwhile, uh, there were some of us in 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 the room that, uh, who uh, who tried to uh, share our real lived experiences of abuse in residential schools. And uh, in some ways, it was a re-victimization. It did open up old wounds, and for her to leave that room and to continue on with uh, some of the things she said afterwards, I have to really seriously think about and reflect on what I just heard her say in the Red Chamber. And so I'm very cautious about saying that uh, I will accept her apology. You know, sometimes, uh, like in residential school after I left, there was always a feeling of I don't trust anybody because of what happened. Um, and uh, in some ways, I, I, I do carry those feelings today. And that's why I say, let's see what happens going forward in the days and weeks to come. That was residential school survivor Garnet Anjikaneb speaking to CBC Thunder Bay yesterday before the Senate suspended Lynn Bayak. If your birthday's on February 29th, you can legitimately get the staff at a chain restaurant to sing to you this year. That extra day, of course, only appears on the calendar every four years on a leap year. But if it were up to two Johns Hopkins University professors, 2020 would be the very last leap year. And while they're at it, they're proposing we get rid of the Gregorian calendars we use to keep track of every other day, too. They've created what they call a permanent calendar. It's 364 days long, and each year always begins on Monday, January 1st. Steve Hankey is an economist at Johns Hopkins University who co-created the Hankey-Henry Permanent Calendar with astronomy professor Richard Kahn Henry. We reached Professor Hankey in Baltimore. Professor Hankey, what's your problem with the Gregorian calendar? Well, the main problem with the Gregorian calendar, it's a, it's a herky-jerky affair in which every year you have to make up a new annual schedule for the school, for the sporting events. For all the holidays, they don't they don't fall on the same day. And what's wrong with that? Uh, well, it wastes a tremendous amount of time, uh, and 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 in simple terms, you you also have to buy a new calendar every year. <laughs> now, the reason we're talking to you right now is because I guess the I don't know maybe the purpose or the side effect of this would be that we would not have have a, a February twenty ninth ever again, right? No. Uh, we we never would. Uh, every we would have four quarters in the year, and each one of those quarters would have three months. The first two months of the quarter would have thirty days, and the last month would have thirty-one days. So each quarter, ninety-one days multiplied by four, you get three hundred and sixty-four days a year. And then instead of having a leap year where you add an extra day, as we're doing this year. February and have we have 29 days we would add an extra week 
at the end of December every five or six years. Okay, and that extra week is because, in fact, it takes 365.24 days to get the Earth to orbit around the sun, and then so you have to compensate for that, right? That's the compensation factor. Which is, which is why we have February 29th. You now, got it. Now, so, but would this eliminate, would we still have seven days a week? Yes, we would have seven days a week. This is the critical part of our calendar. The, the fourth commandment we, we rigidly uh, uphold and have a seven-day cycle celebrating the Sabbath on the seventh day. Now, the permanent calendars, there are other permanent calendars around, but they all muck around with the fourth commandment and the seven-day cycle. And so now, was there, was there, is there any personal reason why you and your colleague Richard Con Henry want to change the calendar? Well, the big thing is it really turns on ec- economics, and that is it's a lot simpler to use the Hanky Henry permanent calendar because, in fact, every every day does fall on the same date every year forever, and it's just simplicity in use. You could still retain the Gregorian calendar that actually, from a scientific point of view, is slightly more accurate than the Hanky Henry permanent calendar. But, you know, that's been around since Pope Gregory, 1582. Before that, we had the Julian calendar, and and that's used by some people. We've got the lunar calendar used by the Chinese. And and the lunar calendar, I mean, just on that, I mean, so... The lunar calendar is interesting. I mean, we know that Easter is always on a Sunday, and it, the Good Friday is always on a Friday because it, it's it's dictated by the moon. Ramadan is part of the Islamic calendar. That's a lunar calendar for them. Uh, so why don't we take follow that and and go on the moon cycle instead of um, the Hanky Henry permanent calendar? Well, uh, again, the lunar calendar also has these herky-jerky aspects to it that the permanent calendar eliminates. But in no way would we be eliminating the lunar calendar. People can use it for whatever celebrations they want. And we're hoping, by the way, that that Trump will replace Pope Gregory and Julius Caesar, and that this thing will end up being not a Hanky Henry permanent calendar, but a Trump permanent calendar. <laughs> And, oh, and, oh, that and that will have a big appeal for a lot of people. Well, well, Trump, as it turns out, he's a perfect guy for this because he he understands branding. And I mean, just think of it this way: a Trump permanent calendar would make the Trump towers look like peanuts. You know, it would be lasting forever. All he'd have to do is sign an executive order, which Dick Henry. And I have drafted, and and it's done. <laughs> but so you think that Donald Trump will sign this because he would like to follow in the footsteps of Julius Caesar and Pope Gregory? Yeah, I mean he will be the next Julius Caesar. If, if Dick Henry, by the way, who was born and raised in Canada, and I had thirty minutes with Trump in the Oval Office, were convinced that it would be a done deal. Right now, uh, so if you it, the question though, I mean, because the birthdays. One's birthday would always be on the same day under the the Trump permanent calendar, would it not? Right. Yes, that's correct. So, but I mean, it's okay if your birthday ends up being every year on a Friday or a Saturday. But what have you? you who wants a permanent Wednesday birthday? Well, look at the Queen of England. The, the Queen of England, she she not, she doesn't celebrate her birthday on on her actual birthday. 
you can celebrate your birthday on any you you pick the date i mean if you just go to the go to the gregorian and stick with that all right so when might this happen when are we going to see the uh the hanky henry president trump permanent calendar i mean when you, you must have a you must have a schedule for this well yeah this would be this would be uh 2021 january 4th uh on the uh which would be a monday on their gregorian and that's the date. Yeah, that's it. All right, I'll put that in my calendar. Which one? <laughs> I'm not telling you. Uh, I'll call. I'll call you next year <laughs> around Christmas time. Yeah, whatever date that is. I guess always on a Monday. Yeah, yeah, it, it is always. Isn't that just beautiful? <laughs> Monday, the 25th of December, on the Hanky Henry permanent calendar, which will become the Trump permanent calendar forever, forever and ever. Yikes. All right, Professor Hanke, good to talk to you. Great to speak with you. <laughs> Bye. Stay warm. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Steve Hanke is an economics professor at Johns Hopkins University. We reached him in Baltimore. It started with a children's book. It did not end with a happily ever after. Today, former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh was sentenced to three years in prison for a children's book scam that saw money being funneled into her personal accounts in campaign. Last November, Ms. Pugh pleaded guilty to four counts of conspiracy and tax evasion. The sentence comes months after Ms. Pugh resigned last May after authorities investigated sales of her self-published Healthy Holly children's books. Luke Broadwater is a Baltimore Sun reporter who broke the story. He spoke with Carol last November after Catherine Pugh pleaded guilty in court. Well, it was a monumental day for uh, the city of Baltimore. And, you know, for me as a reporter, you know, we'd been uh, pursuing this story of, you know, a suspected corruption uh, for, for months. And to see her walk into the courtroom, a packed courtroom, with, um, you know, a solemn and stoic expression on her face, and then to walk out on the verge of tears was a day I'll never forget. So she's pleaded guilty to four counts of conspiracy and tax evasion, but it's this is all around children's books. I mean, a self-published children's book that she has called Healthy Holly. So first of all, tell us, what is Healthy Holly? So Healthy Holly is a character that the mayor of Baltimore made up in her view, it was children's books to encourage kids to live a healthy lifestyle. Now, the problem with these books is uh, is uh, well, there are several problems, but but uh, one of them is the, the books are self published, and they frankly have a lot of grammatical and spelling errors in them. And so, when the mayor took them around to the school system and other and other places to try to get them to buy the books, she was told that they weren't really at a level um, that could be used for instruction because of their of their uh, low grammatical quality. She was doing this while she was the mayor of Baltimore. First as a state senator and then as a mayor. Okay. So she um, started this side business called Healthy Holly LLC. Uh, she did it very quietly and, frankly, didn't sell it to anybody in the public. What she was able to successfully do is use her uh, leverage from her political office, first as a state senator on a powerful committee and then as the mayor of Baltimore, to convince prominent nonprofits 
and business people in the area to contribute hundreds of thousands of dollars to make these books. Okay, so how was it fraud that she was selling them the books? What was what was wrong with that? Well, uh, there are a number of things. One, she didn't actually do a lot of the books. Uh, there were over 120,000 books that she had people buy, and she only ended up printing 60,000 of them. And then of the 60,000, she double sold many of those. She would promise one book to one organization, one batch of books, and then would actually then sell that same batch of books again to another organization. And what this whole thing exposed was how all these nonprofits and businesses didn't actually care what was in the books. Uh, whether what their educational value was, didn't actually care whether they were getting in the hands of children. They just wanted to make the mayor happy. And so once she saw that that was the case, uh, the allegation is that she took advantage of that, and that's what she pleaded guilty to. That was Luke Broadwater, a Baltimore Sun political reporter speaking with Carol last November. Earlier today, former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh was sentenced to three years in prison for conspiracy and tax evasion. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.